Welcome to episode 14, The Hallmarks of Modernity. If you are currently enrolled in the 2020-2021 school year, this actually comes after episode 17. The assumption here is that we have already covered the Enlightenment, or at least the bulk of it. That lecture will happen in class tomorrow, and the lecture from that class will be posted as episode 17. Okay, today we are entering the timeline proper. We are backing away from the big ideas, not backing away from them exactly, but we're we're now going to start putting some meat on the bones. We've talked about the theology. We've talked about the philosophy. It's time now to start showing where those things intersect with the actual historical timeline. Uh, This year, we are backing up to the French Revolution. That's really our beginning point. We talk about the Enlightenment, but that's not one single event. That's more of an era of philosophy. Our first real historical event is the French Revolution. From there, we go to Napoleon, then the Industrial Revolution, then the revolutions of 1848. That's our springboard into modernity. And at the heart of the modern age, we have some characteristics that, yeah, have been with us since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden and the fall into sin, but they really start to take on a peculiar set of characteristics in the modern age. We have violence. Violence has always been there. You can study antiquities. It's rife with violence, but we we start to get violence with a different edge. Uh, It's being applied in different ways here in the modern era. And this is even before we get to, say, uh, the the invention of modern armaments. You know, we don't have machine guns yet. We, We don't have mustard gas. We don't have the nuclear bomb. But violence is starting to take on a different face here in the modern age. Infidelity this breaking trust with God and our neighbor. Uh, Infidelity, a lot of times nowadays, is considered a synonym of adultery, and in a larger sense, it is. But when I talk about infidelity in this lecture, at least, we're not necessarily talking about the adultery of a spouse, though that word can definitely include that. It's more of that infidelity that breaking of a covenant relationship, our relationship with God, our relationship with our fellow man. And then piracy. That's something that I want to talk about a little bit more today. In the past, I would have done a huge explanation about piracy in the 1500s, 1600s. I I really need to move on because there's just so much going on this year, but I can't not talk about it. So violence, infidelity, and piracy. These are three core characteristics at the heart of the modern age. Now, where does all of this begin? Where's the tripping point here? It's kind of hard to pin down an actual, you know, ignition point here. But for the sake of argument, we're going to go with 1492. Today, Christopher Columbus sails the ocean blue. He discovers the new world and 
yes, he's one of the most disputed historical figures out there um, in the toppling of statues that happened during this past summer. He was definitely uh, among the reputations that people went to to cut down. Um, he, he's a mixed bag. We talked about him a lot last year, so I'm not going to camp out on Christopher Columbus, but I'll, I'll just say here that Christopher Columbus is a really good example of why you don't just accept sound bites. You don't just accept, you know, a three or four word phrase or a single sentence that seems very complete in and of itself because 99% of the time, if you look at the original document from which it was sourced, you will find that there is a much larger context there that is typically being ignored. And in fact, sometimes the quote itself has been so horribly butchered that uh, they're not even using ellipses to show that certain words or phrases have been left out. Um, so if you have uh, questions about, you know, how, how that shows up with Christopher Columbus, let me know. I can pull out some of my material from last year and I can, I can do a recap. But the fact remains that when Columbus discovers the new world in 1492, that this opens up an age of exploration that mankind just really hadn't seen before. Or if we had had it before, we had definitely forgotten about it. You'll remember with our earlier classes, we talked about how there is evidence that the Phoenicians knew that there were at least five continents. They minted coins that showed the globe on one side and it showed all of the continents except for Antarctica and Australia. So we know that ancient man, or at least certain groups of ancient man, did a lot of exploring. But as far as the modern age is considered, 1492 is the magic flashpoint. In the 1500s, then, we get the age of conquistadors, and this is driven primarily by Spain. And it makes sense. Christopher Columbus himself sailed for Spain, and Spain had just gone through a remarkable unifying process under two different monarchs from two different kingdoms, and they had taken uh, a section of the Iberian Peninsula that had just been in turmoil. They'd been pushing out the, the Muslims. They'd been unifying uh, kingdoms and bringing them all under a central control. And so Spain was uniquely equipped to not just handle internal affairs. They had internal affairs nailed down pretty well. But now they had the energy to look outward. They had the energy to... Uh, go and explore new territory. So with the new world opening up, they start sending the conquistadors. And the conquistadors, of course, need very little explanation at this point. But it bears mentioning that among the conquistadors, we had a lot of Hidalgos going along for the ride. They were part of that wave of conquistadors going to conquer the new world. Now, a Hidalgo was a second or third born son, usually of minor royal descent, who would leave to seek their fortune because they had nothing to inherit. Remember the rule of primogenitor. Primogenitor, firstborn inherits all. Some of that still crosses over into our modern age. 
Um, although the, the way last wills and testaments and inheritance laws work now, it's, it's very hard to completely shut out younger siblings, thankfully. But there's still this idea that the firstborn gets the coveted pocket watch of great granddad. Uh, he gets the largest cut of the inheritance. You know, a lot of families nowadays will make sure that if there's money to inherit, it is equally divided among siblings. But there's still this lingering idea that the firstborn gets something special because they were first. They were the first one to navigate this weird world of adults and, you know, and somehow filter, you know, uh, events, you know, standing between that and their younger siblings as things happen at home or, you know, things happen at school, whatever. So there's always been this, this idea that the firstborn is unique. They're special. And so in the middle ages, especially there was this law that existed in most places, the law of primogeniture, firstborn inherits all. Well, a Hidalgo, a second or third born son might be a prince or um, have a honorary duchy, but just in name, just in title. They had no actual land, no castle, no army at their back. Um, they were respected. They showed up to all of the formal banquets. Um, they had one of the nicer bedrooms in the castle, but there was, they had no real credentials. Um, they were just a figurehead. So standing not to inherit much of anything, these younger sons would join up on these uh, quests to the new world. And you know the story. Spain goes into Central and South America in particular. They, they push up into North America some too, but especially in Central and South America, the, Sp the Spanish come across gold. They come across spices. They discover how to grow sugar cane in these areas. Um, they find all of these different ways of becoming fabulously wealthy, especially in the earliest days when they are plundering people like the Aztecs for their gold. And so the Hidalgos, these conquistadors, come back from these first few uh, quests into Central and South America. They return fabulously wealthy. In some cases, you have Hidalgos returning from the field of glory more wealthy than their royal parentage. You know, they actually have more gold than some of the crowned heads of Europe can even dream of. So this sets off a big scramble for the new world, but it is a scramble in which Spain and Portugal become the centers of power. Portugal figures prominently into this, both as explorers and also as conduits of the slave trade. Slavery had diminished radically during the age of Christendom. It was all but gone except for fringe corners of the the, the wider uh, Christendom, uh, what the area that we call Christendom. Um, however, Africans selling Africans, Africans selling Africans to Muslims, Muslims sell Africans to the Portuguese, the Portuguese start bringing Africans over to the new world. So this, this is where the floodgates open. Um, again, 
slavery is a, a dialogue that I have at the beginning of American history. I spend about a month, a little over a month, actually, just focusing on the Native peoples of North America and slavery and the history of slavery in America. And I do that before we start talking about American history, the, the actual uh, American history timeline. And, and it's because it is a very complicated subject. So I will not go into a lot of detail about that here, but this is the entry point. This is where the Portuguese start seeing that they could make a lot of money by selling slaves to people who are trying to create civilization in a new world wilderness. So even though they are a tiny country and most of the countries of Central and South America learn to speak Spanish, they have colonial ties to Spain, Portugal is, they're in the thick of it. Spain, of course, becomes the dominating power in all of this because they are the ones making inroads through North, Central, and South America. They are conquering native peoples. They are harvesting the gold or getting other people to harvest or, or to, to dig out and mine the gold for them. Uh, they topple the Aztecs almost without firing a shot. Not literally, but almost. Uh, so they become the dominant invading force of the Americas. And as their power grows, as they gather more wealth, as they conquer more land, other people start to notice. Other countries back in Europe start to notice. And we get the Treaty of Tordesillas. This splits the New World in half, but it's a very lopsided half. It's, it's, it splits the New World in a way that unfairly tips the bulk of the, the Americas into Spain's control, with the exception of one little sliver that is supposed to be under the control of the Portuguese. Of course, the Portuguese, who are willing to work and wait and to just make their own way in all of this, they settle for their little strip of land and start to work their way inward into South America. This is where we get Brazil. Okay, and ironically, Brazil is the largest landmass under, you know, one government in South America today. And of course, their uh, official language is Portuguese. Um, but all of this tips the balance of power. I, I'm summarizing brutally here. I, I'm, I'm not giving you any special dates or names with this because this is setting us up for the age of piracy. The balance of power has tipped and the European countries are watching this happen. They're watching Spain just leave them in the dust. They are accruing massive amounts of wealth. And not just in gold, they're getting it in spices, salt, raw timber, uh, land, other natural resources, and Europe goes green with envy. Now, why didn't any of the other European nations get a slice of the pie, or at least as easily as Spain did? Well, there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, one of them, one of the big reasons, is that there was still a lot of infighting going on even within individual European countries. And you have to understand, too, that the idea of a country, of a nation state, is a pretty modern idea. If you look at maps of Europe 
in the late Middle Ages, even clear up to the days of George Washington, the maps look really squirrely. Um, you don't have a clear-cut Germany. There are several Germanic kingdoms. In fact, at one time, there were as many as 37 Germanic kingdoms. Uh, in the Italian boot, that Italian peninsula, there were 19 principalities that spent a lot of time just fighting with each other. Uh, and then there was an international law that was built, built on fealty, family ties, oaths of loyalty uh, uh, that, uh, you know, with interconnected liege lords. Um, France was concerned with succession issues. Uh, and then the Dutch were mired in 80 years of war against the Habsburgs. And then the British, bless them, they go out and explore, but they have this wonderful intuitive ability to focus on inhospitable lands that were not necessarily easy to explore, let alone map out or conquer. See North America, India, Australia, pick a country, pick a region. Um, so the, the British are amazing at this, don't get me wrong, but they don't get the immediate wealth, the immediate returns on their efforts the way the Spanish do. I mean, the Spanish basically walk into Central America, knock over the Aztecs, and they come home with more gold than they can fit on a whole fleet of ships. I mean, they just, it's, it's like this instant classic rags to riches story. They're at the end of the Reconquista. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella have finally pushed the Muslims out of Spain. They've also pushed out most of the Jews as well, uh, but their coffers are depleted. So whenever Christopher Columbus opens up this door into a new world, then all of a sudden there is this mania to go and find this wealth and they start bringing home gold. It, it goes to everybody's head. And also the gold is coming into the Spanish coffers at a rate that would not have been believed by any previous generations. So, you know, the, the Spanish get an, an immediate payout, seemingly. Um, the British, not so much, but they hang in there. Um, part of their story, we get in the American history timeline, the rest of their story when it comes to Australia and India, we'll get to that later this year. But the bottom line here is that Spain gets to it first, and they get most of it. So how do we get a cut of the gold? Pirates. This is where piracy comes in. Um, now, a lot of times in original documentation, you will see mention of privateers and corsairs. These words a lot of times are used interchangeably. These are words that pop up even in modern culture with movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, etc. But it a privateer is different from a pirate, okay? A privateer, also known as a corsair, is a pirate commissioned by the government, okay? So these are people, men usually, who have permission by their government to pirate other ships, to knock over other ships and take whatever they can and keep the ship a lot of times as part of their own pirate fleet. Now, um, to do this, 
you had to have a letter of Mark. And that's Mark, M-A-R-Q-U-E. This letter of Mark was essentially official documentation that you had been commissioned to, uh, uh, to go find wealth wherever you could find it. And it, it was signed off on by a liege lord or a magistrate or a prince. And what this meant was that the bearer of the letter could not be charged with piracy because he had government permission. Okay, so this is a distinctly modern notion. Do you, do you see how we're sort of setting the stage here? If, if you have this letter of Mark, then you can't go to jail because you are doing illegally thing, illegally doing things with permission from your government. And so if you're sanctioned by the government, then you can do whatever. And if you don't have the paperwork, then you're in deep trouble. Okay. So this is, this is starting to sound kind of familiar, right? If you've got the government's seal of approval, go right ahead. But if you don't, um, sorry, buddy, um, you're, you're in deep trouble now. Okay, so this becomes the standard from modernist thinking that right and wrong are determined by the paperwork, by the legislature, and not from an eternal standard. Okay, this also ushers in an age of espionage. We can spy on our neighbors. This is normal. We learn what we can. We use it to our advantage. Now, granted, spying was not a new thing, but this organized network of spies. That, that's where we start to see the beginnings of things like the FBI, the CIA, the KGB, where, where there's this uh, a very intentional network of spies going out, gathering intelligence, reporting back to their government, and then the government making policy decisions, military decisions, based on what their spies in the field are reporting back to them. So this is different than just, you know, King Harvey saying, you go infiltrate this court, you know, listen to what people are saying and report back to me. And then he makes decisions based on that. Now, this is where we get an established network that is considered to just be part of how the government works. There's, there's like a, a whole safety net of spies to fall back on. Now, obviously, it didn't congeal and, and, and come into focus that way overnight. But this is really where it, all of that begins. Now, how does all of this change the world from Christendom, the world of Christendom, into a world of modernity. This is where your two charts that you have there in your note-taking sheet, this is where the charts come in. Um, this is where we see that, that distinct mindset shift from the liege lord and fealty and uh, covenantal relationships of Christendom, these begin to shatter and we get a totally different mindset on how uh, individuals and regional governments and national governments do life. 
So you have three columns there, three spiritual contents, three spiritual realities, three grave consequences. And I should add as a sidebar that I did not invent uh, this particular chart. Uh, the Giles Kirk curriculum by Dr. George Grant is the backbone of how Allison and I teach the upper level humanities. And uh, we have modified the curriculum over the years as time has passed, other conflicts have happened, other presidents have come into the White House. Uh, there's There's been a lot that's happened since the early 2000s, but there are a lot of core chunks of the Giles Kirk curriculum that we still use untampered. This is one of them. Okay, so this chart, um, if, you know, if it seems kind of deep, um, or brilliantly worded. I'm not the author. This is courtesy of Dr. George Grant. Um, so, but let's go across uh, instead of down on the chart. So for number one, going left to right with the three spiritual contents, here's here's the reality, the, the spiritual reality that is laid down in scripture. Number one, the creator-creature distinction. This is woven into our reality, and that reality cannot be blurred, erased, changed, or bridged. Creator-creature distinction. The idea that God is in heaven, he is our creator, we are made in his image, he created us, period. Okay, so... This does not allow for evolutionary thinking. This does not allow for a, a lot of other theories about how we came into the world, who made us, etc. Creator-creature distinction. This is woven into the fabric of reality. It's not going anywhere. Okay, so what happens then, and this is where we move over a block into the, uh, the first uh, block in the three spiritual realities. If there is a creator, then that means there is a sovereign providence actively at work in the world. So if we accept the creator-creature distinction that God is in heaven and he made us, then that means that he not only cares about what happens to us, but he is actively at work in daily circumstances. Um, the, the old pun is that history is really his story because his fingerprints are all over it. And he is constantly working in the ways of men, not because we are perfect or because we have it all together, but in spite of our shortcomings. Okay. So if there's a creator, then he's at work in the world. And that leads us to what happens if we ignore that, that's the grave consequence, the first one there. When the creator-creature distinction is denied, then man immediately falls into infidelity. This is broken trust between God and man and between man and his fellow man. So if you remember, we've talked about in earlier classes that there's this very Trinitarian uh, set up when we talk about a covenant, you, you picture a triangle with God at the top of the triangle, and then there is someone at one corner, uh, one of the bottom corners, and then another person or group at the other bottom corner. And a covenant is between those three entities. So when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, it's a covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. 
So it's very Trinitarian nature. That is shattered when we ignore the fact that God is real and he is our creator and we are made in his image. Okay. So that's grave consequence number one. Now let's go to the second row here. The second spiritual content that is woven into the fabric of reality and cannot be ignored is imagio dei, the idea that we are made in the image of God. And this is made in the image, not in the sense of corporeal or physical aspects. Um, there's a, a lingering idea even now that um, if, if you ask somebody to draw a picture of God, they would probably draw somebody who looks a little bit like Gandalf um, on a cloud up in the sky somewhere. He's got big bushy eyebrows and a big uh, bushy uh, beard and he hands out blessings, but he also stands in the middle of the bridge with his staff and, and, you know, uh, wards off the Balrog. It's, you know, but that's, you know, that's not what we're talking about when, when we talk about being made in God's image, where it's like, oh, I've got his nose, I've got his eyebrows, I've got his sharp pointy chin. By being made in the image of God, this means that, that many of the characteristics of God, not all of them, because he is God, but many of his characteristics are ones that we have been given a portion of. So we have a capacity to love. We have the capacity to be creative. We have the capacity to be rightfully angry, like righteous anger at injustice and wickedness in the world. These are characteristics of God. We have these as well. We have a soul. We have a spirit with his impress on it that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. That's imagio dei, being made in the image of God. So step two then if, if we accept that we are made in his image, then we realize that we are made for covenantal relationships. Now, these are supposed to be part of our real reality, that, that Trinitarian, again, think the triangle, relationship, God in heaven, and then there's me, and then there is my family on the other corner of the triangle, or it might be my neighbors, it might be people at school or at work, it might be America at large, but there's that covenant connection that helps me remember, that demands that I remember that I am responsible to someone, God, and I am responsible for someone. And that would be whoever I'm interacting with in the moment. And by being responsible for them, you know, this gets into how do I respond? How do I react? Am I telling them the truth? Am I trying to deceive them? Our responses to the people around us reflect how we view that covenant connection with God and man. If we ignore that we are made in the image of God, then it becomes very easy to ignore the impress of God in other people, whether they are saved or not. Now, the grave consequence then, if we ignore this reality of being made in his image, then those covenants are no longer recognized. And revolution becomes the only means for change. And of course, that brings a whole host of just nasty consequences. Um, so, imagio dei, 
If we accept it, then we, we have that covenantal relationship. Not perfect because we are all sinners. But if we really walk away from that and, and break that, then revolution, radical, violent change becomes the only way to solve problems, big and small. So let's look at that third row there at the bottom. The third spiritual content is that we live in the reality of a fallen world. All people are sinners. And we must take that into account whenever we deal with ourselves or each other. So I'm a Christian. I live in a fallen world. And though Christ has redeemed me, I still sin on a daily basis, much more than I would like to admit. And I can guarantee that you're in the same boat because that's just who we are. We are all sinners. And if I at any point ignore the fact that I am inherently wrong and that I cannot fix myself, if I ever ignore that, then whatever stresses, problems, issues I'm having in my life, all of a sudden they've gotten a lot worse because ignoring that reality brings with it a, a, this sort of spiraling cycle of more sin. So the spiritual reality, box number two there, um, is if we acknowledge that sin, then we realize that there is no gray area in right and wrong. There's no little sins. There's no little white lies. Everything matters. Absolute right and wrong do exist. And this and the next box, this is where as moderns that we really start to trip up because even as Christians, we like to argue with this second box here. Okay. We don't like the idea that there's no gray area because if we can keep the gray area, if we can keep the debate going, then we can effectively push the blame off on someone else. We can deflect it away from ourselves. And you know the thing. It's like, oh, well, if you knew it from my point of view, well, you just don't understand. Because if you had seen what I had seen, if you had been the one who was hurt in this situation over here, then you would understand that what I did was normal. But like, I, I can't be blamed for this, you know, it's it just devolves into a lot of blame shifting, but as moderns, we are really really good at that. Unfortunately, um, so that gray area, that adiaphora of well, you know, in this situation it's wrong, but in this situation it's it's not so bad. You know, um, it, it gets into the area of situational ethics. Um, when is it right to tell a lie? Well, according to scripture, it is never right to tell a lie. Um, so if you re ever read The Hiding Place, um, The Hiding Place is a wonderful, you know, true account of Corey Ten Boom's experience during the Second World War. Uh, some of you have read it. I, I won't spoil it for you here. But there is one scene in that book where a woman is faced with, with Nazis, they have come into her house and they ask her, do you have Jews hidden in your house? And she tells the truth. She says, yes, I do. And of course the Jews are hauled out and they're put into trucks and taken away. And the whole time they're being hauled away, 
um, they're, they're, they're screaming, they're crying out. Why did you do this to us? Why did you tell us, you know, tell on us? Why did you tell them? And the woman's like, I can't tell a lie. It's wrong to tell a lie. And of course, as time goes on, and, and as the situation finishes shaking itself out, I won't spoil it for you, but it becomes clear that the only way for those people to have been rescued was if they had been taken out of the city by the Nazis on their trucks. If they had stayed in the woman's house, they would not have survived. But nobody knew that in the moment. She was just faced with a Nazi. He demanded an answer and she told him the truth. Now, that kind of thing for a modern person, you know, somebody living, you know, after the American Revolution, like this absolutely blows our mind. Okay? Um, having that sort of eternal view, even in the middle of something like that, is just astounding. It, it, it's just, it's mind blowing. Okay? So no gray area, absolutely right and wrong. Something that we are not very comfortable with here in the modern era. And then the last section there, the grave consequence of ignoring sin. If we deny the reality of sin, our purpose for living becomes self-focused, driven by a quest for personal peace and wealth. In other words, total materialism. It becomes more about the technology I own, the vacations I take, the clothes that I wear, instead of how am I responding to my world? How am I investing myself in my Savior? Am I spending quality time every day getting to know my Savior better? Am I looking for ways to serve others, to heal the breach, um, you know, in, in, in different situations? You know, when things start to take on more importance than people, then your priorities, my priorities are totally out of whack. And granted, we live in a world where cell phones and email and things like that are, are part of how we do business anymore, especially with, you know, sheltering at home, you know, being able to order groceries online at the touch of a button hat was wonderful in the midst of all the uncertainty. And even recently, um, when, you know, uh, whether it was the weather or our schedules or, or whatever, just being able to pull up the laptop and do a bunch of banking and grocery shopping online has been great. But I'm not supposed to live inside my computer. I'm not supposed to live for my shopping sprees. I'm not supposed to um, live for that next vacation, that next great destination. Okay, those are privileges. They are luxuries. They are nice to have. Sometimes, as with a lot of the technology, it's necessary. But there should never be a point where I value my time spent on that over the time I spend with my Savior and with the real people in my life. This wraps up 
the introductory theology and philosophy portion of the school year. It is time to move forward into the timeline proper. Uh, make sure that you have all your blanks filled in on your note-taking sheet. The thing that will cost you the most points most of the time is simply leaving questions blank. Don't do that to yourself. If you need to, go back, listen again. You can fast forward through portions you don't need if you've already listened to this. But make sure that note-taking sheet is complete because you will definitely need it later. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.